Good afternoon, and, and, and welcome to another, um, another in our year-long series of diplomatic history speakers. Um, today, I'm, I'm proud to uh, introduce Holger Neering, who teaches, uh, well, background, he, he received his uh, MA in modern history in Germany, and then went on to receive a PhD in modern history at Oxford University in 2005, and he's been teaching for the last several years at the University of Sheffield in Britain. He has a major book which is forthcoming uh, probably in the autumn with Oxford University Press, which deals with the emergence of anti-war and anti-nuclear protest movements in Western Europe during the period of the later Cold War, and he's going to talk to us today about an aspect of this. His work really combines the focus on foreign policy with the focus on on social movements and and cultural change during the latter period of the Cold War, and he's been here on a short-term basis as a a visiting scholar, essentially. Unfortunately, he has to go back and, and teach in the U.K. before the end of this month, but we've been happy to have him around for uh, two months. So, Holger? Yeah. Um, thanks very much, uh, Bob, for the very kind introduction. And I'd also like to thank, actually, Carol and Bob for facilitating, for making the stay here possible, um, to Rick Herman for um, inviting me to come here as a visiting scholar, and to really everyone else, especially Kathy Becker and Powers, um, who were really running the center from an administrative point of view um, and for helping to make this such an exciting interdisciplinary place to work and to study. Um, The talk today actually relates less to my uh, research on anti-nuclear weapons movements um, and the Cold War and actually more to a um, conversation I've had with some colleagues in Norway um, after singing Tom Lehrer songs um, late in the evening, uh, where we discovered that there are these various stories of exceptionalism. Norway as especially peaceful, of course, after the uh, peaceful resolution of the Union with Sweden in 1905, and then, of course, my own home country, Germany, as well as a, an especially peaceful country post-45, not to speak about uh, the United Kingdom. Um, and uh, we've just heard Gordon Brown today in, in Congress. Um, now, what I'd like to do in my talk today is to offer a critique of an argument that's recently gained widespread currency, not only on the European side of the Atlantic, but on this side as well. And that is the argument that Europeans have become distinctly peaceful and have actually been for quite a while, at least since 1945. The title of my talk, A Peaceful Europe, sounds, from one perspective, perhaps like an oxymoron. Given the history of violence and warfare, that's characterized European history until at least 1945. From another standpoint, the title sounds too blindingly obvious to merit any further investigation. Indeed, politicians, political scientists, historians, and many Europeans have credited European integration with the creation of a uniquely peaceful domestic and international situation. Nonetheless, this topic has recently gained some public prominence, and it is therefore worth taking a closer and perhaps different look at it. The most famous or perhaps infamous contribution has come from Robert Kagan, who has argued that Europeans are from Venus, whereas Americans are from Mars. I would argue, uh, these planetarian metaphors aside, that this position is actually not as untypical as his political position might suggest. In fact, my impression is that even his critics actually, by criticizing him, reaffirmed his analysis of a peaceful Europe. They just drew different normative conclusions from it. A good example amongst academics uh, uh, for this kind of take is Stanford historian James Sheehan, who has made precisely Kagan's argument 
uh, from a historical perspective and asked, where have all the soldiers gone in Europe, paraphrasing the 1960s song? This argument of a peaceful Europe is, of course, not new. Those in Germany and France in particular who've been very fond of European integration, the creation of a European Union of States, have always claimed this, and they've credited themselves with achieving it. In a speech to the European Parliament in 1995, the French President François Mitterrand, together with West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, one of the main proponents of this view in the 1980s, framed this problem by counterposing the, and I quote, grief, the pain of separation, the presence of death inflicted by the nationalist rivalries during the years 1939 to 1945, to the peace and conciliation that European integration had brought after 1945. A critique of this historical interpretation could focus on a number of levels. <clears throat> it could, for example, offer a comparison of European on the one hand and American on the other hand ways of dealing with war and peacemaking. It could also highlight the export of European violence to the colonies and then actually show that European states have no, been no more peaceful than any others. Or it could simply point out that Europe hasn't really existed as an entity across the 20th century, that things were just much more complicated and nationally specific. I intend to do none of these things. Instead, I shall focus my critique on two different levels, as I think that they are conceptually especially interesting. First, I'd like to redirect our attention away from the causes of peace in Europe towards the processes in which peace was created. Because the essence of peace, I would argue, is actually that it was highly dynamic and it was extremely contested. And a lot of the approaches so far have actually always equated peace with some form of stability or calmness. And this is actually a very early modern, if not medieval, notion of uh, peacemaking. So I'd like to, in a sense, dynamize uh, the study of uh, peacemaking. Historians have actually remained conspicuously silent on this issue, and have found also some of the uh, political scientific approaches to the topic, such as Roland Paris's book At War's End, for example, and more generally, theories of democratic peace, not entirely convincing, precisely uh, for the reason that they actually assume that definitions of peace are given as usually referring to international stability. What I'd like to do in particular is to suggest that discussions about peace in Europe were actually highly dynamic, I've already said that, and that they were very closely tied to discussions about the meanings of democracy and political representation. And that's another point where quite a few uh, political theorists and political scientists have actually assumed a meaning of democracy, usually meaning representative governments through parliaments, parties, and elections, often modeled um, according to the U.S. model that was actually precisely not given in 20th century European history, but was actually highly contested. In other words, neither the norms relating to peace nor the institutions that might implement these norms were actually given. They were moving targets and historically highly contingent. The second uh, level of my critique um, is that I'd like to suggest that the peace that emerged in 20th century Europe has been much more limited as a result of this, much more restricted and ultimately much more ambiguous than has been assumed and that the story of peacemaking in Europe in the 20th century has as much been a history of loss as it has been a history of gain. Conceptually today, I will actually not focus on diplomatic history in the narrow sense of international relations. Instead, I'm concerned with the force profonde, forces fundamental to or underlying diplomatic actions as the French historians Jean-Baptiste Durosel and Pierre Renauvin have called this in one of their introductions to uh, French international relations in the 20th century. 
In particular, I'm interested today in highlighting how peace was quite literally negotiated amongst different international and domestic actors, between town and countryside, between different religions, between refugees and domestic populations, as well as between military organizations, armies, and civil society actors. Peace, therefore, never came automatically as a consequence of social and economic structure of specific cultural assumptions. People actually had to make it and to create it and quite literally build it on the ruins of war. I can obviously not touch upon the details and the complexities of historical developments in my talk because I've only got about uh, sort of 35 minutes left now, but I hope that we will have some time to discuss some of these issues uh, later in the discussion and to go a little bit deeper than I can in my talk. What I'll do is I'll proceed chronologically, um, starting in the period after the First World War and then moving to the period after the Second World War, and then conclude uh, with a few observations on the implications of this uh, story for European foreign and defense policies in 2009, and also for transatlantic relations. So let me... Uh, start by talking about the period after the First World War. Many historians here have singled out the Paris Peace Treaties, most of them signed in 1919, as the main cause for the problems that followed. Civil wars across Europe in East and West, the rise of Hitler, National Socialism and Fascism, and even the economic depression of the late 1920s and early 1930s have been blamed on these treaties. Some have also assigned a contributing role to the U.S. as it did not enough to help Europeans enough to get out of their economic and social plight. Historians such as Margaret Macmillan, Sally Marks, Zara Steiner, Melvin Leffler, and Frank Costigliola have done much to revise this picture, uh, but the general interpretation is actually still around. An exclusive focus on these issues can, however, distract us from the underlying factors that made it possible that some countries during this period, the 1920s and 30s, managed to avoid unrest and civil war, while others did not. I think the key problem um, after World War I was that European societies and governments debated what peace should mean. So there was actually no agreement on what the meaning of peace after this war to end all wars was supposed to be. There were different concepts around, and no consensus actually emerged, neither between countries nor within them. Did peace refer to minimalist notions of international and political stability? Did it even refer to a return to the political systems before the World War? Or did peace imply social democratic socialist reforms or even revolution? This issue of defining what peace was, and this is what made the discussions even more complicated, um, was uh, further given um, some kind of uh, thrust by the fruition of mass democracy during and immediately after the First World War. The key question, therefore, was not only how to create a peace, but how to organize government and political representation after millions of people had fought in the war who had not even been allowed to vote or who had been disenfranchised or felt disenfranchised in other ways before. In short... The First World War and the debates leading up to it brought the decline and fall of two of the most enduring interpretations about war and peace in Europe that had guided enlightened thinking since the 18th century. And uh, those interpretations had two elements. First, that nation states could live in peace with one another once they had been firmly established. And second, that people are peaceful whereas princes and rulers are belligerent. After the First World War, it was actually no longer self-evident that populations were the peaceful ones uh, and uh, rulers uh, were not. Um, 
and this complicated peacemaking and concepts of peace quite substantially. No historical conjuncture illustrates this more clearly than the two opposing peace plans that American President Woodrow Wilson and the Russian revolutionary Lenin devised as they became reference points for the debates about domestic and international peace in the coming years. In October 1917, Lenin called for peace without annexations or indemnities, a peace that would entail a program of social reform, if not revolution. Wilson, by contrast, in his so-called 14 points of January 1918, held up prospects of of a new political and economic order that would preserve the future peace, became a focal point for discussions about a better world when the war was still going on. There was, however, and that's key, never a Wilsonian or not even a Leninian moment in Europe. Rather, there was a multitude of post-war moments in which these peace plans and many more ideas about how to create a durable peace became reference points in the civil wars that emerged in Europe after World War I. In these wars, the precise shape of the peace was often quite literally fought out between uh, different ethnic, religions, religious, social, and political groups and their governments. Soviet Russia saw a continuum of war, revolution, and civil wars. Wars and skirmishes along the Russian border did not end until the conclusion of peace with the newly created Poland in the Treaty of Riga in March 1921. Peacemaking in East Central and Eastern Europe also followed in the wake of more or less developed civil wars, many of which followed on from the German occupation regime during the First World War. This had repercussions for creating peace within European societies. Here, historians have told relatively straightforward stories that I want to summarize here very superficially. The UK because it won the war and because it was essentially civilized and democratic, avoided revolution and civil war. In Germany, with its authoritarian tradition, a lack of democratic traditions, um, and actually being a loser of the war, moved directly from violence to national socialist and communist street fighting, and then into the Nazi dictatorship of the 1930s. Things were more complicated, though, because contemporaries in 1918 would have been unable to guess and to predict which European country would end up with an authoritarian, with a communist, or with a, in the broadest sense, representative form of government. In fact, the notion of the UK as especially peaceful and civilized is a product very much of this period. Before the war, election campaigns had made the country one of the most violent in Europe, Recent research on Germany has also shown that negative concepts of an enemy were actually quite alien uh, to the significant number of German soldiers that hailed from rural areas. Rather than fighting for something, they actually fought in order to end the war, to end their physical pains. Freikorps and stormtroopers were therefore exceptional phenomena, usually composed of men who had not fought in the war who wanted to recreate the military experience afterwards. It was only from the mid-1920s onwards, interestingly, during a period that's usually been called the period of stabilization, that war and violence, rather than peace, became the focus of German political debates and that they vanished in the UK and in other countries. It was only in this context that the Versailles Peace Treaty was reinterpreted, and I quote, as a violence against the defeated. This reinterpretation was the result of the ways in which different religious, social, and economic groups wrestled with the problem of how to create political, uh, social, and economic peace and to wrestle with the consequences of peacemaking in this era of mass democracy. The imagery of violence and warfare that were debated here actually uh, reached far into even pacifist publications. There's very little, if you read um, Eric Maria Remarque's book, All Quiet on the Western Front, that distinguishes the descriptions there from Ernst Jünger's book on uh, Storms of Steel. 
because they're both very explicit in depicting the violence and also the images pacifists use and far right-wing um, uh, activists use are actually remarkably similar. The interesting thing is this happens in Germany. It doesn't happen in the UK, although the conditions were actually quite similar initially. Peace there also remained quite precarious. There was widespread looting and disorder on Peace Day on the 11th of November in 1918 in a number of British towns and major cities, such as Coventry, Luton, Liverpool, and Cardiff. Violence actually continued to remain an important part of election campaigns and of British popular politics. And it was only during the debates that uh, accompanied the brutal British involvement in the Civil War in its Ulster colony and in other colonial settings, specifically in India, that led to the redefinition of British politics as essentially peaceful. In other words, it was the fact that Britain was able to show that it was especially civilized and peaceful in the context of empire and colonialism that led to a different outcome. One could even go as far and argue that the notion of a peaceful, peaceable kingdom that emerged in the UK was essentially an imperial notion. Successful processes of peacemaking were, by the way, not restricted to Western Europe. One of the most unlikely candidates is Czechoslovakia, the country had only recently been created out of the Habsburg Empire, uh, but it soon came to regard itself as an island of peace in a sea of violence and troubles in the 1920s and 30s. Although the country showed a much more complex mix of ethnic, religious, and political divides than almost any other European society, it nevertheless managed to negotiate the peace remarkably well. How did this work? It actually worked for the creation of conscription. Um, this was um, the way in which the Czech government tried to create some kind of national cohesion, and it actually worked until the Second World War. The problem is that because it led to a buildup of a, of a mass uh, mass army of a large army that the border regions were actually rather unstable and that of course that army could be used very much to destroy the peace. So there's a paradox here and I'm going to say something about that in the when I talk about the post-45 period later on. Such negotiations about the shape of the politics of peace also had an impact on the interactions between domestic and international politics. This was not a world made safe for democracy, but it was actually a world made safe for national politics, a world not only of minority rights, but also of forced deportations. And this happened because the Vienna system of international relations, named after the Congress of Vienna of 1815, had given way to what one could call the Paris system. Vienna had centered on dynastic legitimacy and state sovereignty within clearly defined borders. The Paris system, by contrast, focused on populations and on an ideal of state sovereignty rooted in popular national sovereignty and very often came with racist and ethnic concepts that actually transcended the borders, the geographical borders and boundaries of the nations that had been established. And Kara Fink's work um, has engaged quite significantly with the consequences of this for, um, for Jews in Europe from the 1880s to the 1920s. So populations now had reached the core of international politics. And this actually started already quite a while before Wilson coined the term national self-determinations. Traces can be found in some of the international treaties of the late 19th century, but World War I acted as a crucial catalyst. What had started as a war between states swiftly also became a war between and amongst people. Germany's plans of a Mitteleuropa, a central Europe, contained within it an understanding of populations defined along ethnic 
lines, and this was something the German army tried to uh, develop in some of its uh, occupied territories in the Baltic. In the Russian occupation zones in Galicia and Anatolia, Jews and Muslims, respectively, were treated as security threats and deported. The Armenian genocide in 1915 was also part of this pattern. The Paris Peace Treaty embodied these principles, and one could even go as far as, say, as saying that they actually, in a sense, rubber-stamped them. The different positions about the precise shape of domestic and international governments and the forms and definitions of peace actually continued into the Second World War as the National Socialist regime attempted to create a European empire based upon its own anti-Semitic and racist logics of annihilation. It did so, though, by perversely appropriating notions of a social peace and creating a racial, social, and economic order across Europe. Hence, the Second World War in Europe was much more than a diplomatic conflict. It was actually a maelstrom of multiple and overlapping civil wars. The National Socialist policies and the politics of the advancing German troops set free or exacerbated social political and ethnic divisions that all related back to the question of representing a peaceful order under the conditions of mass democracy uh, that go back to the period after the First World War. Similar processes occurred when, from around 1942-43, the Soviet Union managed to push German forces westwards and set up its own types of regime. The history of the period after 1945, and that brings me to the second section of my talk, has often been told as one of redemption after the purgatory, where Europe finally found its peace. That is true on the level of international relations, where the destructive power of nuclear weapons gradually began to reinforce the aversion to war, to major war amongst policymakers that had already begun uh, to be seen in the period following the First World War. But the history of domestic politics tells a different story. Many of the civil wars that had started during the Second World War did not suddenly stop in 1945. The challenges Europe faced at the time were enormous, and if anything, they were actually more severe than the ones after the First World War. This is what makes the emergence of some form of stability over the course of the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s even more surprising. Living conditions were no better and not much different from those in the 1920s and 30s. Europe was still predominantly rural. Economies of wood, coal, and steel still dominated. Mass consumption had not yet reached the countryside and indeed many parts of the populations. Many areas still lacked electrification. There were millions of refugees and displaced people. Infrastructure and housing had been destroyed on a large scale. The civil war in Greece in the late 1940s shows what might have happened elsewhere. There were violent conflicts between urban and rural parts of the populations. Communist partisans and erstwhile supporters of the German occupation government lasted well into the post-war period and formed the basis for the creation of an extremely violent conflict and later, actually, the creation of an authoritarian regime in the 50s and 60s, which only collapsed in the 1970s. In Italy and France, gradual redefinitions of the war by all parties as fair and just and as actually very far removed from the German uh, experience and German domination of warfare helped prevent such an outbreak of civil war. But the creation of peace went hand in hand with um, quite a lot of violence, most notably in France with the symbolic cleansing of the body politic um, by shearing French women who'd been accused of collaboration with national socialists and who were basically hounded naked uh, through the streets of French towns after the war. And this really continued until the late 1940s. Political violence in Italy from both the left and the right 
lasted well into the 1970s, if not the 1980s. Similar patterns of negotiating peace in the wake of violence occurred in Eastern Europe, usually with the direct involvement of the Soviet Red Army. There, the use of the retribution of national socialist crimes, usually through mass killings and expulsions to cleanse the nation state, served as a device of political legitimation. Throughout this period, there were blowbacks of of violence from the colonial sphere, most notably with regard to the French war in Algeria. Nonetheless, what stands out from today's perspective in comparison to what happened before is the overall calmness, if not dullness, of European politics in the 1950s and 1960s. The key for making peace after World War II was that Unlike after World War I, there was now a broad consensus about first what peace was and what democracy was supposed to mean. Peace was now defined primarily as individual security, and notions of democracy converged around ideals of some form of representative government in the West and a sort of socialist welfare dictatorship in the East. And that actually in the East did not just happen with the power of Soviet arms, but was actually supported by uh, some form of popular legitimacy, as more recent research has shown. The answer, I think, to this shift lies, I think, less in international relations and more in internal European developments. It was these developments that gave rise to the highly suggestive notions of a peaceful Europe in the West, an anti-fascist and therefore peaceful Europe in the East. And it was the emergence of the self-interpretation that actually aided the transition from war to peace significantly. Historians have explained this stability by highlighting the involvement of the USA and the Soviet Union in European politics after 1944. But more recent work by Anne Dayton and uh, William Hitchcock in particular have stressed that the Cold War, or at least its genesis, can be seen equally well as a process made in Europe and imposed on the superpowers who were actually still very much operating on a global scale. In other words, superpower rivalry affected but did not determine the emergent stability. I would argue instead that the root for the success of the creation of peace in Europe lay in the war experiences themselves and their political and social repercussions. Because what happened during the war was that uh, politics very much became localized and individualized. And if one looks at memoirs and diaries from the war years, what's Quite amazing is actually that on the one hand they tell extraordinary circumstances and um, so extraordinary times, extraordinary violence, but on the other hand they uh, tell stories of a liberation, of a personal liberation, of personal freedom. So what happened during the war was that actually the link between government on the one hand and citizens on the other one actually collapsed. And that happened across Europe. And that gave rise, actually, um, to a completely different idea of what normality meant. Normality now meant a focus on material and social welfare. So what people wanted was, they wanted, on the one hand, uh, consumption, and on the other hand, they had an interest in uh, some form of social welfare. It is here that T.H. Marshall's analytical notion of social citizenship actually had its normative historical place. It's in that context that uh, T.H. Marshall came up with that notion. And it's precisely because of that emphasis on individualism and consumerism that the U.S. attempts in the Marshall Plan and later on to actually sponsor that form of democracy based on consumption was and could be so successful because they could sell that as a model that created peace in a century that had so far been characterized by violence, and they could plausibly do so. The interesting thing is that even East European societies um, actually had to pay attention to this, and more recent research has actually shown 
um, that they uh, very much conceived of themselves and were seen as by the populations as welfare dictatorships who could provide people with that kind of individual security. Over the 1950s, then, this led to the emergence of a new form of polity, and in a sense, the European Union is an expression of this. It is one in which citizens participated not as activists, but as members of collective interest groups seeking to ensure that they received their fair share of the political deal. It was also based in the 1950s and 60s on the virtual hegemony of Christian democratic parties. In Eastern Europe, a similar fragile consensus emerged around this notion of anti-fascist welfare dictatorships, again, actually, interestingly, with a fair share of political legitimacy backed up uh, by the violence of the army and the police force. The political and social foundations of this form of government collapsed over the course of the 1970s. This happened in the wake of two oil crises, severe problems with the manufacturing sector, and the growing perception that societies had become ungovernable in the face of a series of new environmental problems and the rise of new political actors, most prominently in the form of new social movements. Detente meant that some of the previous arguments of bolstering these arrangements in the context of the Cold War had actually lost most of their plausibility. What's interesting is, though, that although the political and social foundations of this form of governance in this creation of peace had collapsed, the structures of governments and the discourse about a peaceful Europe have actually remained in place to the present day. The relatively peaceful fall of the authoritarian regimes in Portugal, in Spain, and in Greece over the course of the 1970s and their transition to that very model of representative government seem to only reinforce that interpretation and the by and large peaceful revolutions across Eastern Europe in 1989-1990 only added to this self-satisfaction. But this peace defined in terms of social welfare and stability came at a substantial cost. And I shall focus here very briefly on two elements. First of all, um, during the Cold War, border crossing was a dangerous activity. Dissidents, exiles, or politically active women also in the 50s and 60s appear to represent uh, some kind of danger for the political system. While the border between the Eastern and Western Bloc, the Iron Curtain, had begun as a zone of contact immediately after the war, it soon became uh, connected with dangers of subversion, and violating it could uh, trigger major international warfare and crisis. Added to this was the experience of mass migration during the 1920s and 30s, um, and this has actually instilled, I would argue, Europeans with a fear of moving. Um, and actually, you can still see this, that Europeans probably move house uh, far less often uh, than especially Americans, I would argue. The, the British are an exception, but it is actually quite interesting that there's a different relationship uh, to uh, that kind of moving. And this relates to the second element, why this was a history of loss. It was linked to processes of becoming national. No one talked about this in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but essentially uh, this period led to um, a continuation, if not resurgence, of nation states and their powers and of national governments. And the European Union to the present day is actually very much an intergovernmental affair, an international affair, um, and not so much a supranational unit. And this has relate, uh, resulted in a rather interesting situation uh, with regard to border crossing in Europe today. While the gradual elimination of borders within the European Union over the last few decades has actually produced nominally more freedom of movement, new 
but invisible borders have actually been created. Theoretically, belonging to Europe today is a question of one's citizenship and passport. But in everyday life, the status is determined along different lines. If there are no border controls, regulating access to a particular national polity and its resources, these controls have been replaced by informal, yet widely accepted definitions of belonging that are still very often uh, follow along national, racial, or even ethnic lines. This is hidden um, under the veneer of a talk about cultural communities, um, but essentially only certain cultural communities are affected by those regulations. Um, And it has basically led to mobility without any kind of political rights. So if you actually move to a different country, uh, you're very welcome to do so, uh, but you will have virtually no political representation with the exception of local elections, which in most European countries are completely meaningless. Um, And of course, uh, the the fraught discussions over Turkey's entry to the EU only uh, demonstrate this further. The notion that Europe has been especially peaceful and that the transnational shape of the European Union has somehow helped create that peace has, I think, actually led to a blockage in confronting these important issues of citizenship and belonging in in this kind of European (coughs) Union. Let me come to my conclusion. Obviously, I could only give a few very rough snapshots here in my critique of Europe as especially peaceful. Of course, Europe has been, by and large, peaceful over the last decades. But I think that that has led to a rather strange complacency amongst most Europeans that have blamed or tended to blame most, if not all, violence on countries in other parts of the globe and that have not really looked at the ambiguities and losses of 20th century European peacemaking closer to home. I therefore like to conclude with uh, three remarks uh, where I think that notion of a peaceful Europe has had a particular serious impact on defense and foreign policy making um, in the transatlantic context. First of these is that the self-interpretation of Europe as especially peaceful has encouraged policymakers and the military across Europe, East and West, to focus their efforts on war prevention rather than the waging of war, i.e. we have now militaries in place um, that are there for the purpose of not waging wars. This shift had been given added persuasive power by the switch from the waging of warfare to deterrence during the Cold War. War has almost exclusively become identified with peacekeeping and peace enforcement. As a result, the business of fighting is no longer driven by political strategy makers or actually by politicians, but it has moved underground. The operational level of warfare has become a virtually politics-free zone that's characterized by a high degree of self-referentiality. Even in those countries where conscription still exists, armies draw recruits from a very narrow section of society. The army has basically become the domain of the working class with lower than average levels of education, whereas the affluent and better educated middle class chooses to refuse military service. With the exception of the small so-called intervention forces, therefore, European armies are therefore, uh, for the most part, extremely ill-equipped and underfunded to engage in modern warfare. Second, this has led to a disjunction, often complete misunderstanding, between civil and military actors, and some of the anti-militarist slogans and commentaries that accompanied the large-scale demonstrations against the Iraq war in Europe, even in those countries, such as Germany, where the government had taken the same positions, are evidence for this. Given the challenges, this breakdown of the civil-military relationship is highly problematic, not only for reasons of expediency, but actually for reasons of political legitimacy. 
and I think this is quite a serious issue. And I think, uh, and this is my third and last point, despite occasional voices for burden sharing, these self-interpretations by Europeans were actually encouraged by Democratic Party foreign policy during the election campaign in 2008 because they precisely appealed to that kind of stereotype Europeans had developed of themselves. This may be a good example of the exercise of soft power, but I actually suspect uh, that there will be a a blowback. We can already see that Vice President Biden's call for burden sharing at the Munich Security Conference earlier this year was actually met with quite a bit of frowning and skepticism across Europe. And although Germany, for example, recently increased its army contingent in Afghanistan, European society's self-definition as especially peaceful and European government's almost complete withdrawal from the business of fighting wars will present serious structural but also cultural obstacles to a new transatlantic honeymoon, regardless of uh, uh, Gordon Brown and President Obama having just met Um, I think there are actually uh, serious problems um, that will have to be confronted in that area. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the issue of the definition of peace, which is in some respects very central to your talk. After World War I, it seems to me, the definition of peace was we don't want to do that thing again, or the Franco-Prussian War, the Napoleonic War. It had almost nothing to do with riots or civil wars or revolutionary wars, or much more colonial war. So if you take that very narrow definition, which I think was the war and war, they didn't mean the end war against the Jews or something, or much less among the Jews, but they meant between France and Germany. And so that, if you take that narrow definition, uh, the peace has been pretty impressive. Um, that's true on, on one level, but saying, yeah, yeah, but, the, okay, we, we don't want to do the, that that kind of thing like the, the First World War ever again, but that's a sort of maximalist definition of peace. And actually, people kind of said that, but they then advanced different peace strategies to deal with that, and that was the problem. Um, so I think I agree with, with your general point. Uh, but I think that it's precisely because this specific, the, the specifics were uh, so disputed that um, uh, the thing spirals out of control. And actually, if you look um, at um, uh, political actors across the political spectrum, you can see that actually some of them had violence included in their forms of, of peacemaking. I think international relations is a different story where actually you can see that people did not merely want to return to the kind of politics of of, uh, before 1914. And actually, focusing on population politics was one solution. But of course, that was, uh, again, created new types of problems. Good problems here with that. Yeah, um, I'd agree with that, but the problem is that that's not how the the various uh, population groups actually saw it, because they then um, referred precisely to the status of international law to justify their claims, and that has very often uh, led to wars, both in the interwar period, 20s and 30s. I mean, this is how Hitler justified his revisionist claims. He said, we want national self-determination for the Sudetenland, and they've all cheerfully decided to uh, wanting to be part of Germany. And that was part of the problem. And uh, with the UN after 45, you can see this in, in quite a lot of areas uh, beyond Europe, I think, 
Um, I think that's, that's certainly right, that that kind of ideal existed, but the problem is that on the ground domestically, that was very often also by governments used um, for completely different purposes. And I think that's the ambiguity I wanted to bring out, that actually there is no sort of simple uh, uh, type of solution. Carol. Yeah, um, I've argued somewhere that actually, um, in a sense, the terrorism of the 1970s has led to a reaffirmation of Europe as particularly peaceful as governments reacted to it because they considered themselves as waging a war against terrorism and then afterwards winning it. Um, and actually, uh, the interesting thing is that um, terrorist groups over the 70s and 80s, and this happened in France and Italy and in Germany, actually became more or less completely isolated because even their erstwhile supporters said, you cannot do this. You cannot act violently to further your political aims. Um, Italy is a slightly more complicated story because there the terrorism goes back very much to the resistance and to the collaboration with National Socialism in the Second World War because there you get right-wing uh, terrorism as well. That was basically meant to topple um, the, the elected Italian government and replace it with some kind of military dictatorship. Um, but I would argue that the net result of those discussions is actually a reinforcement of the notion of a peaceful Europe. Um, Northern Ireland, um, I would actually regard as a, uh, that's the interesting thing, um, and this is actually, it's complicated. Um, I would actually regard no Northern Ireland as a colonial um, context. The interesting thing is, though, uh, how little it has affected British notions of itself as especially uh, peaceful. This is the, even during the 1980s, they still think that they are especially civilized when, when the bombs go up, and it's basically the, the, the mad Irish who are, who are causing all that, uh, all that havoc. Um, Britain, though, and I think this is why the question is so complicated, Britain was, in a sense, more detached um, from these processes because it was not directly involved or not that much exposed to uh, violence uh, the, the kind of violence in the Second World War. Um, and therefore, it was, in a sense, it continued uh, with this sort of national story uh, of peacefulness uh, since 1945. Yes, but it hasn't changed anything. You can go to Britain now. They said, uh, send us to Iraq. We can sort it out because we've sorted Northern, I Northern Ireland out. This is actually, you can read this across the political spectrum in, in quite a few uh, newspapers. And this is actually what, what, uh, what the army uh, in the UK would also claim. We've sorted uh, Northern Ireland uh, out. And there are all these kind of heroic stories about how they came back from Iraq and then the US army came in and they kind of destroyed everything because they were doing the kind of nice British thing. Of course, it, it doesn't coincide with the reality, but this is actually a very powerful uh, self-interpretation that, that is still there. And it was actually remarkably, it remained remarkably intact uh, over the course of the 1980s, which was also when um, uh, Margaret Thatcher um, basically waged a military campaign in, in the Falklands War. So there's a kind of um, split in... Um, interpretations there going on. Um, but, yeah. I saw um, Rick. I'm very interested in this municipal boundaries membership. And I'm wondering what you see the consequences of that. I mean, I think you're right. Like France, Italy, and Germany, migrants are moving large Um, well, one, one of the, the consequences is that um, especially if you do not get citizenship, and that's actually getting extremely uh, complicated in countries other than 
uh, Germany that has relaxed its citizenship rules uh, a bit, um, you actually face a series of obstacles uh, where certain functions of citizenship that before belonged together, so social elements, um, political elements, also financial elements, paying taxes, now become completely disjointed. And the question then is, um, what do you do about that? How do you get your uh, political interests represented? And what's happened, for example, in, in Germany and in the UK, and I know Italy uh, less well, but I think also in France, is that a lot of these community groups, often citizens actually, are now uh, making community politics. Um, this is the new kind of thing to say we need to do, we need to organize our community, and then you have a multitude of pressure groups uh, who amongst themselves disagree on what the purpose is, um, but also uh, disagree with the government about its policies. And that has very much complicated the, the political structure and has actually also complicated the problem for the government because the government now doesn't really know whom to talk to. Um, there's a huge problem with, with Muslim communities that the question is, whom do you talk to when you want to talk to the Muslim community in the UK and, and trying to, to bring them in? So I think what's happened is that um, different communities have emerged, but the kind of, some kind of political cohesion has actually uh, completely uh, declined. No, I, I completely agree with that, and that kind of continues uh, the, the kind of Cold War story, where even someone who had fled uh, the Eastern Bloc uh, came to be regarded as someone in, in Western Europe who was somehow dangerous. Um, those stories actually exist of people who, who crossed the border because they were political dissidents, and they then arrived in a country uh, that said, um, actually, you're quite suspicious because you're a little bit too left-wing. Um, so uh, I would agree, and this happens now even more so, that basically then the, the kind of now governments try to make international politics also by addressing those kinds of communities at home. Um, The, the organized crime uh, yes. element. Yes. Um, you know, Italy is not that far away from organized crime either. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't go quite as far down, down as that. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, again, I think uh, this is another complicating factor. 
in, in, in essence. I don't actually uh, think that it's, um, as far as I can tell, I, I don't think it's that much of a, of a, of a serious problem, um, especially because um, the, the kind of notions of organized crime, I mean, things have become more permeable, and it's just added uh, to the skepticism to, towards so-called foreign communities, that they do not only get labeled as representatives of you know, the enemy, but also linked to some kind of criminal activities, uh, whether it's true or not. Yeah. Um, my impression is, though, that um, that is less of a problem in, in Europe, but that may be my, my selective reading of, of what's going on. But I can't really see um, Europe moving down to the, the kind of path of, of the Mexican-U.S. border. I can't really see, see it on, on the level of, of those kinds of uh, problems. I actually think the, the, the sort of hardcore political issues that come out of that are actually extremely serious because they lead to a lot of disaffection, not only amongst the, uh, the, the migrant or immigrant communities, but actually also amongst uh, the uh, so-called majority populations. And this is a, is a huge challenge. Um, uh, that, I mean, I don't have a – I'm a historian, so I don't deal in, in political – uh, recipes, but I can just diagnose the problems. Um, and um, it is precisely because of the history I've been talking about that, that makes these kinds of ways of in interpreting um, migrant and immigrant communities so attractive and so plausible, because in a sense it's a continuation of, um, of enemy images uh, that's just shifted to a different uh, group within the population. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm curious whether you talked a lot about uh, the notion of a peaceful Europe, all the damages to that, but in a place like France, which is slowly coming to terms, say, with or beginning to remember the Algerian War, for example, do you see any sort of hope that, that Europeans are, are going to perhaps change their perception of history? And, Um, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, in a sense, it's already happening. With, I mean, you mentioned the the war in in um, in Algeria and France's reactions to it, but it's going to be a very um, slow process. And this is why I said at the end, there's not going to be a transatlantic honeymoon because uh, it's actually going to take uh, some serious reflection. Um, to get to that period, and I think that hasn't happened yet uh, because there's still a lot of... Um, it's still, in a sense, the post-1989 moment, if one can call it that, where there's still a lot of satisfaction that this massive challenge was mastered in a peaceful way, and I think that's across the board. Um, and I think that has uh, prevented addressing some of these issues. I think it is going to happen, but again, as a historian, I'm not really in the business of making, uh, <laughs> making predictions, but, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, John. Uh, okay, can you expand this a little bit? Uh, going back to Kagan, what you've argued basically is Europe is considerably less Venetian than he indicated. Uh, would you say that uh, the United States is less Martian than he said? Or is there still a gap between the two that you can hear um, I know too little about U.S. history to to uh, really come up with a very <laughs> yeah 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 I was about to do that but I was going to start with a with a declaimer uh, I think so actually I think I think that's uh, that's actually true because it's very often um, if you um, if you look at uh, the discourse in Europe where usually flag-waving now is, is designated as a kind of almost quasi-militarist activity. 
um, and as a sign of some kind of unreflected patriotism. Uh, the interesting thing is if you go to Norway, um, for example, almost everyone, especially in houses in the countryside, will have a Norwegian flag in, in front of it. And actually, I'm, I'm, to put it polemically, I think Norway is one of the ha most highly militarized societies in, in Europe, not least because uh, they, they have conscription, and it's actually, uh, I think, one of the most... Uh, across-the-board uh, conscription armies uh, that there is at the moment. And um, the military still plays a, a huge role in, in the presence there. So I would actually, I would probably reduce the Martian character of, of the U.S. a little bit as well, if, if I were to do so. And I think evidence could be, could be found for that. If there are no more questions, I think we should join in some applause for our speaker today. Thank you. Thank you. It's really good. Yeah. Good discussion.